Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome back to Changes with me, Annie McManus. This is series four of the Changes podcast. Delighted to have you with us. If you're new, this is conversations all about change, how we enact it, how we navigate it, how it's kind of the bedrock of our life. Personally, since the last series has come out, I've had some big change in my life, mainly my professional life where I have stepped away from my main job that I've been doing for 17 years on BBC Radio 1 into the wilderness without anything to replace it. I'm not on the radio at the moment deliberately because I want to kind of feel this change and feel the new space that it affords. So I'm going to be kind of talking to you about that throughout this as well. Just the idea of being out of my comfort zone, feeling that discomfort and dealing with all this new space and time in my life. So yeah, I'm excited. I've, I've got that kind of exhilarating feeling that change brings and I can't wait to share those feelings with you in the future. So we're starting Changes Series 4 with a bang. Steve McQueen is without a doubt one of the most acclaimed and influential artists of his generation. He had won the Turner Prize when he was 30 and then turned his attention, or some of it at least, to filmmaking where he's made a series of vivid, punishing and powerful statements, each one more surprising than the last. First, he made Hunger with Michael Fassbender about the imprisoned Irish Republican Bobby Sands, who died after a gruelling hunger strike. Then he made Shame again with Fassbender about a sex addict living in New York City. Then came 12 Years a Slave, the harrowing true story of Solomon Northup's desperate attempt to escape captivity in the American Deep South. That one earned him the Oscar for Best Picture. So yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that Steve McQueen has reached the very precipice of whichever field he's working in. And that's all the more impressive when you consider where he came from. Steve grew up in Ealing, West London, the child of a Trinidadian father and a Grenadian mother. At school, he was institutionally ignored, placed in the lowest sets and encouraged to seek work in manual labour. Instead, he discovered a talent and a fire for art. He got himself into the most prestigious art schools in the UK, then the world, and forged his own path to success in a landscape conspicuously bereft of role models who he could identify with. His most recent film project, Small Axe, is by far his most personal to date. It's a series of works inspired by the Windrush generation, of which he is a direct descendant. It's an often joyous celebration of the world and the people he grew up with, but it's also, like so much of his work, fueled by a powerful sense of injustice and anger. You're going to hear some of that anger in this conversation. By Steve's own account, he goes a mile a minute, and we covered a lot of ground here. Privilege, cinema, the difficulty facing black musicians but we started somewhere very close to home for Steve 
We recorded this conversation earlier in the summer. The Euros were still going, travel was still difficult, and Steve, who lives in Amsterdam, was longing for London. And to the podcast, Steve McQueen. I miss my mother. I really miss my mother. I think it's the longest time I've not been with my mother since she's given birth to me. It's heavy. It's not cool. I'm hoping to go back, come back to, to, to the UK soon because I think that i got to put that wrong to right. It's heavy. Yeah. She's all right? She's in good health? No, she's great. She's perfect. She's, she's got a walking club. She's busy. She's, my father died about 14 years ago um, right. and all that. So she, no, she's just on the phone. She's having a laugh. And it's coming home on the phone yesterday on the phone <laughs> about the football <laughs> and whatnot. It's good. But it's just, you know, it's weird how you catch yourself sometimes. You feel upset or a bit weird. Think, oh, what's that about? I said, oh, shit, I haven't seen my mum in. Mm. I have the exact same thing as, as an Irish person, not getting back there. It creeps up on you. Yeah. Mm. Let's talk about art first. Um, when did it arrive in your life, Steve? Art. Um, I could always draw, and that was the thing. And I was just curious, you know, I was this curious person. And I just, you know, paintings were the first thing, I think, that was sort of interesting to me. And I, and I went to Tate, I think when I was about seven years old, that school trip. And I saw some paintings by a guy called Edward Barra. And I was really kind of fascinated by, by them. And the fact that in the museum, they put these things on a plinth, they put these things on a pillar, they put these things in, in positions of importance was sort of interesting to me because, um, you know, these were things I was interested in. And I wasn't very good at certain things, but the, the fact that I could do or was interested in certain things, something which was given that amount of importance, that sort of um, was the first time I sort of got into it as such. Yeah. And when did you realise that you were good? I still don't. I still don't. But withdrawing, was there someone in school or was there someone that was encouraging you? Um, other kids. Cause, oh, wow, you could do that. Steve, draw me out this. Steve, draw me that. And, right. Wow. And, and yeah, I mean, not particularly a, a, a teacher. Uh, no. But just yeah. that, I, that people, there was acknowledgement that I had to, a, a talent for drawing. That was it. Mm. You've talked about being dyslexic. Were you aware of that as a kid? No, I just thought I was stupid. Right. You know, I never thought, you know, I just, well, stupid though, because I knew I wasn't, <laughs> but I knew I had difficulties because I, I, you know, had big balls in the way that I knew I was putting myself always in front. I was always, you know, I knew, I knew that I couldn't do certain things, but, and I, you know, but no one was there to sort of help or, or identify it or recognize it really. But I was very precocious. So, you know, somehow, you know, dyslexic people, well, particularly my, myself, I can only speak for myself, you could rewire your brains in, 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 in different ways. So I was always quick with, with things and you sort of do things differently in order to sort of achieve. So, yeah, I didn't, but there was this niggly thing in me that I couldn't do things what other kids could do. But then again, I could do so many things that other kids couldn't do. So I was there. And what did that, that kind of discovery of this, of this feeling of kind of having this little superpower, what did that do for you as a kid? I just think you just sort of, you identify things, you, you sort of, um, things happen in, in a much more immediate way, in a way. You, don't, yeah. you, you, you sort of, you, there's, some, there's so much meta that you don't have to go, you know, the problem is I think there's the people, you don't want to do you know, the A, the B, the C, you want to go to, you know, W, X, Z, <laughs> whatever it is, you know what I mean? Even, you know what I mean? <laughs> I said that wrong, but it's just like you, you, you're breaking things down in such a quick way, but you're not doing all the, the, the procedures to get to that. And, you know, I, I, I catch myself sometimes saying, oh, when I used to be dyslexic, well, I am dyslexic, but, you know, I'm not being punished for it. 
And in fact, one is being sort of celebrated for it. It is the difference. No. When did you get the diagnosis? Can you remember the moment when you discovered that you were dyslexic? I knew I was dyslexic for, you know, you discovered it myself. And you, right. one gets diagnosed. So I knew, I thought, okay, well, that, that, that sounds like me. By that time, you know, even when I was in NYU, New York University, which I hated, you know, I hadn't been like, diagnosed then, but I'd made my way all up through a bachelor's. I got a first in Goldsmiths and into, to, into a master's. So how the hell I did that? You know, it's almost like, you know, you're running a 100-meter sprint with, you know, a broken foot. But, you know, I was just so focused and so interested and so uh, loved what I did that, you know, somehow I sort of negotiated. Not even, it wasn't even negotiation. I sort of, I did things differently and, it was, and they were recognized. That was it. I, can't, I don't know what to, more, more to say about it, really. Looking around at that time, there really was no template for the kind of artist that you ended up becoming. So how did you know what steps to take to get to where you wanted to be? I was so in love with art. I didn't give a damn. I didn't need it, sort of role models and all that crap. I didn't need that. The only thing that I liked, I liked Basquiat, because I liked the fact that there was this one, this, this one guy that no one, I, when I was growing up, no one gave a shit about Basquiat, don't forget. Right. But when I was growing up, people didn't think of anything of him, apart from the hip people or whatever it was. They didn't think anything of him. Like many black artists, I remember, go, you know, when I was growing up, going to the States in 1995, there was, only, there was only about three or four black artists who, who had representation. You know what I mean? No one gave a shit. So for me, it was just all I was just so, so much in love with art. It was so, it was so amazing. So it, it basically gave me my liberation. It gave me my, 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 my education. And that was it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what would you say would be the biggest change that you went through as a child? Biggest change I went through as a child. Hmm. I think when my liberty was when I went to art school. That was my liberty. That was when I felt so comfortable. And I, there's two things, actually. I met a very, I had a very important girlfriend. Right. This girl, she was called Anouk Sugar. She's a Swiss girl. And um, she's still a dear friend of mine today. Huge. And going to art school. Um, and she, she was named after Anouk M.A., the French uh, film actress. Right. And um, she was huge because in some ways you got me, when you're in London or we're growing up in London, your world is London, so small. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to meet this, this, this person and to sort of have a situation where this person is showing you cinema. The only time I went to the cinema, I was to sort of you know, go in the back seat with a girl. That was about it. I wasn't even interested in what was going on. All of a sudden I had this girlfriend who we were going to sort of um, see Renoir movies. We were going to see mm. uh, Kurosawa movies. We were going to, to see you know, Truffaut, Godard. You know, or, I mean, I was learning about the world through cinema in the dark with someone I loved. And it was heavy because what was interesting to me, it opened up my fucking world. I mm. remember when we went, then we went to Zurich because you know, obviously their family's Zurich. And I saw these young people, because I never, same age as me who were going to be doctors who were going to sort of do, be research scientists or going to be interested mm-hmm. in politics, which is in art. And I was like, gee, I never been. <laughs> and it was, and I was like, oh, um, you know, it was just interesting to sort of be in an environment where there was no limits or there was no right. situations of, 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 of boundaries. Mm. And I was within that and having these kind of conversations. That was heavy. That was heavy. That was huge because then I realized, oh, you know, there's, there's a bigger world out there. And then before that, I did this BTEC course because before I went to Chelsea School of Art, I did this BTEC course, which was, which was in some ways weird. And in that time, I went to Devon. There was an art trip to Devon. I remember it was my first real time in the countryside. 
And we had to sort of go off and take your drawing board and your charcoals and whatnot and go out there and uh, into the countryside and, 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 uh, and you, know, you know, draw and, and to take in the landscape. And it was, uh, it was kind of weird because you put in the middle of nowhere, you're on a bus, you put, you put in the middle of nowhere, it's okay, go off and there, whatever, uh, and then come back here at a certain time. So it, it was really weird because it was really dangerous. Yeah. Because so, it was quick, because I remember actually getting lost because on, on my own and kept being caught in this fucking mist. And all of a sudden, this fucking cow is coming oh, out of the mist. Which is terrifying. Literally, in the city, kid, you know, you got me. And then there was a fucking cliff edge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then then kind of, kind of trying to find my way back. And then, you know, doing these etchings on this, this, this drawings of this windswept sort of, uh, sort of trees and charcoal in the rain and, and the, you know, the horizontal rain and, and getting, and I was just like, oh my God, I was loving it. And climbing down cliff edges, going to the beach. No, taking all my clothes off, going to sea with my friends. And, wow. But it was just wild. I thought, oh, my God. And also what was interesting about that was being in nature and making art. And it was that was I think that was a huge, huge turning point to my confidence in a way. And I don't know why. Maybe it was just being in, in, in an environment which was which was mine in the countryside. But I'd never sort of been sort of had a relationship with it. And also sort of having the, having that freedom of doing what I was meant to do for the first time, work, art, um, and not having the sort of, I don't know, the nonsense or the certain kind of apparatus ar- ar- around me. I think that was a huge change. But that and, and, and meeting that girlfriend, Anouk, she's a dear friend of mine to, to this day. Mm. Heavy. Mm. Fantastic. Liberty. 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 It was about liberty. Yeah, yeah. So you did the BTEC. I left. I left. I fucking left. What age were you then? I was how, 18, 19? 18. I left school at sort of, I did, we, we took my exam. I was, I was, how old was I? So 18, and I went to I went to this dude's BTEC in Hounslow, and it was awful after that because that was the only good thing that was about it. And then I remember doing these fucking excuse my language. You're I was making these fucking dog dogs masks. What the fuck am I doing? I'm 18 years old. I'm making fucking dog. What is this? <laughs> you know. And there was a little bit of shit going on there as well. You know what I mean? There was a little bit of, you know, a little bit of subtle racism going on there. Yeah. There was a lot of weird stuff going on there at the time. You know. And I thought to myself, you know what, Boy, fuck this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply to Chelsea. Because also there was, there was a BTEC course and then there was a, a foundation course. And for the foundation course, there was all these, I'm going to say, there was all these white middle-class people and they turned their nose up to us BTEC people. Yeah. Because like, you know, it was like, and it was just totally, you know, this class thing. It was really weird. So anyway, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to fucking apply to Chelsea School of Art, to the foundation. That was in, within three, three months or four months of me being there. And I applied, and I got an interview, which is great. I went there, and I got in. And they said, you know, your, your, your English, I think I, had to, I think I had to C in English, or you needed a, a B or an A or whatever. But don't worry about it. Your drawing was amazing. Uh, you can come in. And the funny thing is, was years and years later, the, the head of that, that foundation school wrote to me for a recommendation for a school he was applying to to be the head of wow. in, in the States. I said, I said, I said, do you remember when you did this? He said, no, well, guess what? Don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to give you a grand wow. in the, the recommendation. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Talking about this period of your life, then you go to NYU, right? And you're going to study film. You've discovered film. You go there. The New York art scene, notoriously full of pretension, pomp. How did you navigate that as a young adult? Obviously, you'd seen more of the world with your girlfriend, but you're, you know, you're a London boy. How was that? Well, I think she, I didn't see more of the world at all through her. What I did have was the opportunity to realize 
through other people, friends and colleagues and herself, that there was a bigger world than, than, than what was offered to me because of my background. And I left Goldsmiths, it was great, fantastic. I'm very excited about that. And I went to NYU. So NYU, because I, I, I wanted to go to La Famise, because as you, as you could tell, I'm kind of very tenacious in that sense, you know, fuck, mm. you know, fuck, uh, you know, BT, I want to go to Chelsea, fuck Chelsea. Um, you know, <laughs> we go to, you know, Goldsmiths and okay, I want to go, I want to go to, you know, I want to go, I want to go to NYU because Scorsese was there, Jim Jimish was there, yeah. and Spike Lee was there. That's why I wanted to go. But for, actually, first day, I wanted to go to, to La Famise. And what is that? Excuse my ignorance. It's a French film school. I wanted to go to, I wanted to go to French okay. film school, but I couldn't speak French, so... There you go. Um, so I thought, okay, um, I w- I'll go. I want to go to NYU. So I go to NYU, and when I get there, I thought about the money because I, you know, I got some money from my uncle, from my mom. Money was put together. I couldn't get a scholarship, so that was difficult to get. And I stayed at my uncle's, who lived out in Brooklyn. So I traveled in. So you know, all, all you know, people, relatives put money in to help me. I couldn't get a bloody scholarship, and I found out certain people later on got scholarships who were, you know, it's who you know, baby, it's who you know. Anyway, moving on swiftly. So I get there, and it's it's about not, not necessarily sort of being talented enough to be there. It's about being rich enough to be there because the, the fees were di- ridiculous. But I thought, okay, I'll work this year and I get a scholarship next year because you can actually build up to get a scholarship if you you know whatever. And I got there, and it's like people didn't even know who fucking Cezanne was. You know, people didn't even know the history of art in in, in film school. And it was all about, as I said before, it was all about having the money to be there rather than sort of earning your your place there. And um, I got fed up with it. And, and they kept, in fact, there was this professor there called a guy called Mitko Panoff. He was one of my professors there. He said, what are you doing here? I said, well, <laughs> I said, I want to make films in America. I said, I said oh, well. And, you know, it was one of my professors. And I just, then afterwards, I just, I just left. Wow. I left after three, three and a half months. I think my mum and everyone thought I was bloody mad. Was there a turning point? Was there a catalyst? I, it, you know, it, it wasn't creative. It was about having the stamp of NYU on your arm. And then you could, you know, it's like, you know, I went to Oxford, I went to Harvard, I went to, you know, mm. that kind of crap. But it wasn't about what it could offer you and the freedom. You know, I, want, I came from a place like Goldsmiths where you could throw the camera in the air. <laughs> you know what I mean? And see, what, and, see, and see what you get. There was kind of procedure. And I understood the procedure. Yeah. But also, you have to add a little bit of spice in, in the mix. Otherwise, what's the point? You're just, you just, you come out like a black and white photograph, mm. like everything else. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I left and came, and, I, and I, things happened. And I was, the Arts Council at the time sort of... Um, with a wonderful man there who, who, who saw my graduation show at Goldsmiths said, look, you know, if anything happens, why don't you come back and love to talk to you? And then they gave me three grand and I made it an artwork and that was it, never looked back. You said in a recent interview, often it's work that I don't see being done elsewhere. This is about your work. It's the dirty work, I suppose. Can you tell me what you mean by that? I think it's like the stuff, you know, the stuff in between the texts, the text in the book and the stuff. It's almost like, was it raining that day? Okay, what kind of rain? Okay, at what time did it rain? Little details like that, which actually helped to make the situation. The details which helped to sort of galvanize into something. And, you know, so like, like hunger, for example, when I was a child, my mother, I did, you know, this image of this man on screen appeared, a number underneath it appeared, and I asked my mom, what is that? And, this, and the per- my mom said, oh, that's my day this person has been hunger striking. I was like, hunger strike? So he's doing the maths, and it was one of those situations where I could relate to it in a way, because I could relate to it as a child. The only power you have as a child, you know, you know what time you go to bed, what you eat, what clothes you wear are dictated by your parents. 
Right. And the only thing we have as a power as a child is to refrain from eating. And that's kind of, we all know that mm. scenario. And, and then you're in, and one of your parents saying to you, you know, eat, eat that food. And so you say no. And they send you to bed hungry. That is your power to refrain from yeah. eating. And yeah. I kind of felt that. And um, when the opportunity came to sort of make a film, some reason that was the thing I wanted to do. That was the film that I wanted to, 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 to make. And it was a bit sort of, I mean, some people, well, it was bonkers, but I just, well, it was about going out with two guns blazing. I thought, if this is the only film I make, well, then fine. At least I'm going to go out with two guns blazing. That was it, you know, that was it. Mm-hmm. And what was it like making Hunger? I mean, watching it again the other day, wow, what a powerful film. It was fantastic. That was, that was, that was, I don't know if I would ever have that, you know, the people, the camaraderie, the love, the, it was our movie, you know, it was really our movie. You know, that was the beautiful thing about that movie. It was our movie. You know, I didn't know who was who, what was what. What I mean by that is that people were taking ownership of the film because a lot of young people hear about trouble, hear about blah, 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 blah. They, they hear about it, but this was their opportunity to sort of um, grapple with it physically, uh, not by putting a light here, by actually, you know, talking about, working with makeup and costume, wardrobe, you know, talking about it, um, having conversations about, you know, people whose p- parents were prison officers, whose, whose parents were actually behind bars in the IRA and so forth and whatnot. What an incredible first experience in making a feature film, no? Yeah, it was good. And I, then I realized, I understood that it's so much, um, so much about us as a team, whoever, you know, we're working on something, it's about us. That, that unit is such a beautiful thing. Yeah. And with small acts, you know, when, when I see all the actors being interviewed about their experiences, everyone talks about that aspect of you as a director and how you give them freedom to work. And there's a real mutual respect there and, and all of that. Let's talk about small acts for a hot second. Like if you look at all this work, you know, you talk about hunger, obviously there is this kind of deeply emotional uh, connection to the power of refraining from eating that you had. But in terms of like lived experience, it was quite far away. It was republicanism in Belfast in the 80s, shame, same thing. 12 Years a Slave, same thing. But Small Axe feels like the closest that you've come to kind of telling your truth in terms of the life that you've lived in some of the films anyway. Sure. I think but all those films have relationship to me in, 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 in a really intimate way. Yes, this is maybe much more obvious in that way. But I think what it is, 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 is there's a sort of um, a truth and intimacy and a certain sense of possibility, you know, because you, when you're limited and then the, the whole idea of the limitations may be a, a hunger with Bobby Sands or, or, or the character mm. Brandon in Shame or Solomon Northup in um, 12 Years a Slave or you know, with, with those, there's a limitation, but there's also possibilities. It's about how one sort of negotiates the space they're in in order to sort of have a chance at freedom, whatever that is. Yeah. As far as um, small acts is concerned, yeah, this was very much, um, I needed to do it. I needed to get it out of the way, in a way. And I say get it out of the way because I needed, it was something which was sort of growing in me from a very long time, but I didn't have the tools to deal with it. I didn't have the sort of, uh, I wasn't mature enough at, at a certain moment. I need to understand certain things. Similarly to sort of, you know, looking at your parents when you're a teenager as to looking at them now, you know. Right. And and reflecting back at that moment and understanding certain things. So um, this was a time I, I could deal with that. Other things, the homework has been done in a way or mm. I had mm. some kind of uh, advantage. But this, I had to do the work myself. Um, so that, that that's it, really. How did it feel doing that, going back? 
Uh, it's therapy, isn't it? <laughs> it's heavy. Mm. Um, very good. Um, beautiful, sad, sad, and beautiful. And actually being extremely grateful to the people who have done so much for black people in this country, and not for just black people, people in, in, in general, because I think the West Indian community, black community, have advanced the sort of nation, the culture, philosophically, politically, mm. Mm. you know, culturally, as I said before, in, in such an, an amazing way, but they've never got the credit for it. Incredible, mm. incredible, incredible, incredible. And, and you know, my God, the, the fierceness, just the fierceness that I, I love, yeah. And the very physical act of just being in London, like being in the city that you grew up in and kind of seeing it again with fresh eyes. That was interesting, yeah. That was interesting, yeah. Because I, you know, I hadn't shot in London before. I haven't shot, you know, here before. Um, and that was interesting, seeing London. London's, I don't know, London's heavy. London's heavy. London's heavy. London's heavy. London's heavy. London's, I live in Amsterdam. I've been living in Amsterdam for the past nearly 25 years now. But I've been going back and forth, of course, with London and New York and LA and like business. But London, I, you know, London, I'm a Londoner, it's in my veins, but it's, it's heavy, London's heavy. What does Amsterdam afford you in terms of professionally to be out of that kind of eye of the storm of the film industry and the art industries? Well, not the art industries, but, make, you know, the kind of hubs, I suppose. It's fantastic because, you know, and no one knows me, I know no one, no one gives a shit, <laughs> and that's great. And really, it's just, uh, you know, oh, my God, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous in that sense that I'm just sort of, uh, you know, I could just mill around. No, I don't, yeah. you know, can imagine leaving your gate and having to deal with shit. No, I don't, I don't have to do that. I don't have yeah, to deal with that. Yeah. I saw somewhere as well, you talking about the schools there in Amsterdam and the kind of profound difference that you experience in terms of your kids going to school and your own school experience. Yeah, my daughter's school, my daughter's school first school and, and my son's first school. We'll see about the second school. But, you know, that was pretty flipping special. I think, you know, I was very touched and very moved about that because, you know, you know, kids are notoriously happy here. <laughs> They're just happy. I mean, the space to experiment, the space to sort of uh, to make mistakes, the space to sort of hang out in people's houses and going back and forth mm. and all kinds of crazy stuff, liberty and... The holiday, even having a bike and mobility, you know, I'd never go, I'm here, I don't, for a long, long time in my life, decades in my life, I used to leave where I lived in Ealing and come into town or wherever I was, mm. but I never knew I got there because I was underground. I never knew how I got okay, there. Okay, I got you, I got you. Yeah, yeah, but you know right. what I mean? I was just saying, yeah. to travel, I would, I would be in a different state of mind, of mm. travel. You know, because if we sat there, we teleported, you know, in 35 minutes, maybe I'm in the middle of town. And here, I'm on my bike. I see everything. It's a yeah. village. It's a village. Yeah. So, therefore, everything's here. When you're moving, you see everything. It, it, it you have a different relationship with, 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 with the city. Mm. Very much different. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. What would you say is the biggest change then that you've gone through in your adulthood so far, if you have to choose one? The biggest change I've had in my adulthood, the biggest change I had in my adulthood uh, is from becoming sad to becoming happy. <laughs> uh, happy, uh, still, <laughs> still miserable, uh, but happier. Um, and why did that happen? Um I think, of course, you know, children, they help you. Okay, so that's the obvious thing to say. And my wife, she's been absolutely fantastic in that way, sort of just sort of, you know, you know she's, she's, she's a writer, an artist as well, journalist. Um, so th- having that kind of um, sparring match is very, very healthy. The thing th- that changed me is just having a little bit of peace of mind. I don't know. I think maybe I, I worked for it. I worked to make it happen. I made the, I made the space for it. Have a little bit of peace of mind, really. It's not about sort of, uh, you know, awards or um, recognition in that way, because maybe that helps a little bit because it always, it's always happy. It's always good to get a pat on the back. It's always good to get a pat on the back. I think you know, get a pat on the back is very, 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 very important. But that could go either way, couldn't it? That could go either way. And I think for me, it's just the sort of sense of having a sense of liberty, you know, because a working class black man, to have a sense of liberty has been extraordinary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A sense of it, at least. I may, might not have it, but at least I have a sense of it, whatever that is. And do you feel like you're still, you know, talking about your past and, and all of these profound achievements you've had against all of the odds? Do you still feel the urge, this kind of motivation, this momentum to be driving forwards in that way? Yeah, I think as an artist, you, you do. And I think because, of course, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not happy. I'm not settling for that. I'm not settling for this. I'm settling for this. You're, if you're, your curiosity is the key, and it's been from day one, you know, switching on sort of BBC programs and telling you not knowing what the hell that guy or, she, or the woman was talking about, but engaging it and wanting to find out, thinking that thing, you know, something will happen. It, it, and also it's just a sort of sense of, I'm not interested in making pretty pictures. I'm interested in sort of trying to sort of find out or, or discover something which could sort of hold me in a, in a state of possibility. Because in the, the day, you know, it's just about that, really. When the last brick is, is laid, then it's finished. Can we talk about Grenfell Project as much as, you, as much as you're able, of course? I'm interested in the idea of permission over commission, you know, this, this way of approaching something like this, which is so sensitive to a community. Talk me through what this is and what your journey has been so far with it. Well, I can't really talk about it so much because, you know, uh, we haven't, sure. uh, uh, um, because of the pandemic, we have not been able to sort of do what we wanted to do, but hopefully soon. But for me, that was very important, of course, working with the community, with, you know, with my team, 
uh, you know, having the conversations, you know, be, you know, and also because taking it one's time and not not having this sort of situation when you, you know, Grenfell being in Labra Grove is a place where, you know, my family grew up. There's a big West Indian community there, you know, and a bit Irish community there too, uh, you know, predominantly West Indian in that sense at a certain time, you know, with, with you know, this landlord Ratcliffe and whatnot and in slum housing. So it's, it's and of course, Don Hill Carvel. So it's a really kind of rich neighborhood for the black culture. And again, we spoke about, you know, Small Axe and Mangrove obviously being a part of of that narrative. And I think with, with, what, what happened in Grenfell, I remember I was shooting Widows and, and in Chicago and it happened, I just couldn't believe it. And it happened because people were poor. It happened because, you know, no one was listening to poor people. The only reason these people died was because they were poor. That was it. There's no, no other reason other than that. So I just wanted to sort of, I wanted to respond to that particular event. And therefore we had to sort of talk to sort of the people in the community. But I have to come back on your show and talk about it again when, when the, the, we, we get a chance to sort of uh, show the piece, because unfortunately it's a bit sensitive and I can't really get into detail. Of course, that's fine. I mean, talking about just having ideas or, or, or something happening that you feel you need to explore, when an idea catches in your head, what happens next? How do you know how to place it, how to shape it in art? No, what happens with me often is that seeds are planted sometimes like, you know, 15 years in, in advance. And one happens, sees what, what flourishes and what, what doesn't. Little seeds, sometimes it takes time to sort of uh, grow, um, to germinate. And uh, often, you know, some things fade and other things blossom. So it's, it, the, the procedure is something which, sometimes it happens instinctively. That's very rare, to be quite frank. But it just takes time. Uh, and also sometimes, you know, it's like my friend, a friend of mine said to me once, um, David Hammond said to me once, an artist said to me, I don't shit on command. And that's how it is, you know. So it's just things have to happen, you know. <laughs> There's a line in um, the Alex Wheatle film in uh, Small Axe that says, if you don't know your past, then you won't know your future. Is there a piece of your art that has taught you about yourself more than you ever thought it would? I think Small Axe, absolutely. The whole of Small Axe, absolutely, has done that. Talking about myself, uh, uh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I see things in it, even now, I did me master it for the cinema uh, recently, so I did watch it, and certain things which were very inherent, I mean, certain gestures, certain things which I saw, I thought, ah, I understand that now. Uh, and what, what, you know, certain things I saw. And you know what was so interesting about it? Was that, you know, black people just tenacious. We're not giving up. We're not gonna, you know, it's just like, when you look at people, how people were ignored, look, check it out. Look when that, that Britpop stuff was going on. And look at what happens, how was happening to black music in Britain at that time with Jungle and, and whatnot. There was a phenomenal right. music. Right. You know, a lot of people are reevaluating, thinking, okay, well, look at this, look at this, what's going on then? You know, it wasn't about sort of, you know, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's that tricky track, brand new Euretro, you know, and it was, forgive me for saying, I'm even going to say it's a, it's a celebration of whiteness. When you look at the late 70s, early 80s, it was all about celebration of multiculturalism. Then you see Britpop, what's that about? You know, it's just, it's just whiteness personified. So what happened? But it was going on. But it wasn't being given a platform within, you know, popular media. 
You know, it was going on. Look at the clubs scene in the nineties. Of course, and was going yeah. on, and it wasn't given any play. It wasn't given any light because you know it was because who the people owning all these sort of media outlets were these guys who were like, oh, I want me rock and roll. You know, they were they, you know they weren't the young kids who were interested in what was going on because if they were, mm-hmm. it, that narrative would not have gone on. Mm. It was weird. You know, these kids mm. were going to those concerts, but then where were they going after? They're going to the clubs. Mm. So interesting. We're interested to see how that that narrative is, is being rewritten. But to, the whole thing of what, what's taught me is about how black people are just so kind of experimental, creative, and just resilient. And, you know, okay, you're saying that, I don't care. And also, don't forget, people could be sort of winded by that. People could be sort of dischanted by that. People could get sort of derailed by that kind of sort of treatment. But not in this case, not in this case at all. Mm. Steve McQueen, what do you still want to do? Hmm. Lots of things that I still want to do. More than anything, just I think that I just want to encourage other people to come forward, but particularly women, to be honest with you. I think, you know, that was, that's the thing that's really did me in, I think, in this last five years is, you know, I did this film called Widows and I was doing the press for that. And I'm telling you, mate, I never had, I, I mean, and also the Me Too thing, I came very good friends with Taranja. Dranji, the, the you know the, the woman who uh, was the sort of forefront activist on, on on Me Too, we became very good friends. We did the interview with the Guardian, and then we just became friends. Amazing woman, and I just think you know that thing I want to support more than anything else, particularly black women. I'll be honest with you, because it's like people need to have you know the, the, the talent needs to shine. It needs to, it needs to, it needs to be recognised. And I think that's the thing that's changed that helped to change me because when things you when you're recognised. It does give you a little uh, a sort of uh, spring in your step. But also the fact of the matter is these people deserve to be recognized. And we just spoke about the whole idea of, of black music in the in, in, in UK in, in the 90s, how that was totally overlooked. But people just went on anyway. But, you know, a lot of these guys didn't get the recognition they deserved and didn't come through. I never forget, because I was friends with Tricky for, for a while, a brief time in the 90s, and him telling me that, um, who's that guy? He did Return of the Mac, that, that British guy who did that. Mark Morrison. Mark, Mark Morrison. He said, he said to Tricky, Tricky, could you appear with me on the front of Face magazine? Because they didn't want to put him on because, you know, they, they put money if he was with Tricky, but because they don't put black people in front of, of, of the magazine. That's what happened. Yeah. So there was a, you look back in the 90s and, you know, you can look back and you see how people were totally erased from popular culture mm. or tried to mm. be erased from popular culture. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Is yeah, that- I mean, there's been a big thing with house music as well recently because so mu- so many of the voices of house music have been completely erased. So yeah, all the producers are, are white guys yeah, and all yeah. the voices are these black women who yeah. don't even get credited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, could you imagine how it would have changed if that narrative had been corrected? If uh, you know, At that time, the people yeah. given... I mean, people just went and you know, left music and you know became mechanical, did other things because mm. there was no way in. I mean, you know, there was, it was, it was, there was, there was, I mean, there was this blatant racism. And then mm. you think of Britpop, it's like, F off, shut yeah. up. It's just this, you yeah. know, nonsense. And it's been going on a bit, but, you know, don't get me wrong, there was, there was, there was something, there was something that was, 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 was very interesting. But let's, let's be honest, you know, as far as, you know, forging ahead with, with, with the possibilities of music, it wasn't doing that, was it? You can see it in the, I was literally thinking about it yesterday because I interviewed Ray Black, who, who's an amazing young artist um, who has taken five years to release her debut album with the major label because she she just said on my show, that's because she has such a struggle as a young black woman to, she just, everyone just keeps saying no to her. 
Um, but you can, you can see it. I was thinking like how many black women solo artists have crossed over? Like there was Estelle, do you remember her? Who did mm-hmm. that tune with Kanye? Mm-hmm. There was Miss Dynamite for a brief mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. There's been no one. There's well, been could, no one. You, you could go for the list of people who, where are they now? What happened to them? And you could go for the whole list and, 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 uh, you know, it's a very, very sad. And, and within that, I got to talk about actors and directors. Sure. There wasn't, sure. there weren't people were not given a possibility. Mm. You know, people were not given a possibility. Um, heavy, um, heavy yeah. stuff. Um, and then what, what happened to them? I think, you know, Eric Gardner, what happened to Eric Gardner, the murder of Eric Gardner, the Me Too situation has changed a lot. And yeah. I hope, uh, unfortunately, it's you know, so many horrible things have to happen to people. I mean, how many times have things have to happen to sort of, you know, people murdered, black people murdered or women taken advantage of before people think, oh, you know what, this might be a problem here. Yeah. 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 Anyway, anyway. Last question for you, Steve, before I let you go and enjoy your Thursday. Um, What do you need in your life to be fulfilled? What do you need, base level? I need people and okay corny 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 i don't give a damn i need people to be free people in general to be happy because you affect me i affect you you know and that that liberty or that possibility or the what will help in some ways is that everybody has a chance to thrive that is the basic that 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 will sort of help me and not just help me help everyone because you know i'm not happy if someone is taking advantage of that can't be good for me uh, as it obviously isn't good for that person. So again, that's the thing. If that can happen, then that's it. And you know, you know, and I'll just say it, fuck Oxford, fuck Cambridge, mm. fuck all these fucking places. Mm. Because, you know, people, oh, I want my child to go there. Oh, oh my God. You know, all that does is just, is just help to sort of, you know, build up this sort of uh, situation where uh, there's, 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 there's difference. Elitism. Uh, you know what? Guess what? You know, I love elitism. You know what? I am an elitist. But elitism is inclusion. You have to take everything into, bring everything into the equation. Then you can talk about excellence. Mm-hmm. Elitism isn't elitism. It's, there's elitism which is sort of exclusive. <laughs> That's yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. You know, I am an elitist. I want the best sound. I want the best lens. I want the best. I, I want to do the best. I'm so elite. I'm, I'm, in fact, I would say I'm, 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 I'm a snob. <laughs> and everyone should be like that, you know? Right. But yeah. there's a difference with that elitism. Elitism, there's, there's, a, there's a elitism and there's, a, there's a, a certain thing which is sort of, uh, you know, contained over here. There's something different about it. It's because it's not healthy. Oxford and Cambridge and these kind of places, and, you know, you know I, I would never, you know, I've been asked, I would never go there, never, ever in my life. I would never go. Mm. My foot won't cross the fucking threshold. <laughs> That's so mad. I literally got asked to speak at Oxford yesterday, and I've said no three times. <laughs> <laughs> my thought went what you would do is prop up nonsense you know what I mean my thought is they don't need me they don't need me they don't need my experience they don't need my anecdotes they don't need any of that you're so cool to say that because the places that need me are the places I would have been as a child no top person in science ain't coming to my fucking school where I was growing up as a kid right. I, would, I would have needed them that's where I'm going that's where I'm mm. going to go to talk you know mm. I did this project called year three that's what it's about you know, going to the places that you, you're needed, not where, you know, you know where they expect. And it's a horrible word, entitlement. I can let them drop dead. Excuse my language. Mm. Steve McQueen, <laughs> thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Take care. 
Oh man, thank you once again to Steve McQueen for an unreal conversation. I had to just close my laptop after that and just take a breath and kind of take some time to process it. He's so vivacious as a character and I was kind of struggling to keep up with his brain and the way his thoughts were going. He moves so quickly, weaving from subject to subject. But I thought he was so compelling as a person and as a conversationalist and and also just really magnetic. What did you think? I want to know. Let me know, please. Uh, If you found it as fascinating as I did, like, subscribe, pass it along to people, anyone who you know who loves films. It's been a real while since we've done this. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you all again. Talk to me on Instagram. You can find me there on Annie McManus, all one word. Next week, we have a conversation with one of those artists right on the brink of a huge change. Her name is Yeba, which is Abby backwards. She has a once in a generation voice. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this woman's talent. I really, really have been going on to everyone I know about how amazing I think she is. Her career is about to explode. But the thing is, she's already handled some of the biggest personal changes you could possibly imagine. Just as things were coming together for her, her mother took her own life. She's been reckoning with this trauma and the grief of that ever since and you can hear it in every note of her debut album which is just such a powerful piece of work so yeah it was so moving to hear Yeba still in the throes of all that it's a conversation I won't be forgetting any time she's deeply spiritual and deeply eloquent and articulate with how she talks about her world and it's all coming up next week on Changes in the meantime be well you lot Changes is produced by Frank Palmer and we will see you next time Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.